You'll notice that uh, Darren is wearing plaid too. Today is a plaid day, and then some of you clearly didn't get the memo. Uh, there's time to go change. Um, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the shepherds here, and uh, we're going to jump right into John, where we've been, and uh, we're in John 20 this morning. And it's that story where Jesus has resurrected, and the disciples have holed up in that room, and they're waiting. And uh, as we as we look at it, there's uh, there's that question of who exactly is in the room. What do they know? They they know that Jesus' tomb was empty, and that there, the Mary at least has come and told them. And in the Luke account, the people that were on the road to Emmaus, those two have also showed up to tell them, and they're in the room. So they're hearing conflicting stories that, that he's alive. They're hearing that the tomb is empty. Some of them have seen that personally, and so there's this this confusion in their head of what exactly is happening. And so we're going to jump right in. This is out of John 20. And in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, which um, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So we're going to start off with that concept. And I, I just have to tell you a story that years ago, I was with a friend and we were going to go climbing and we loved to rock climb. And so we had waited until winter was over all winter long. We couldn't climb because of the snow and ice. And so finally the, the trails had opened up and it was first thing in spring where we could go out and hike back in. And we would hike in about a day's hike to a place that had a really good climbing um, rock face and we could just spend time on this rock face doing this. And so we packed up all our gear and we headed out and it was so early in the season that it became very clear that not only had the trails just opened, we were the only ones that were hiking back there and the only ones who had at this point. We could see in the snow that was still left in the trail that no one else had passed this way. And we continued to hike, but because it was so early in the spring, the animals weren't used to humans being back there. And so they were all over the place and we would see deer and we would see coyotes and we would see fox. We saw a bob cat and it was really cool. We were excited that we were just seeing all this wildlife and that we had this wonderful nature hike along the way. But along that trail, Bob suddenly stops and says, you know, this is so awesome seeing all this wildlife. And he says, I've never really seen a bear like out in the wild. They're always around a trash can or something like that. It would be really cool to see a bear out in the wild. Yeah, you're like me. It's like, yeah, maybe not so cool. But so Bob says this, well, just a little later, we get to our campsite and we kind of set up our tents and we're sorting through our gear and we put all our food stuff into food sacks so we can go and hang in and away from the bears. And then we go and get all our climbing gear and other bags and stuff like that. And uh, as we're getting the last bit sorted out, we hear this noise and I look up and there in the little bit of distance is a bear. And he's walking towards us. So I grab Bob and I go, Bob, here's your bear. God's heard you. You are a mighty man of the Lord. There he is. And sure enough, this bear walks straight to us so that Bob can see him, you know, assumingly. And so he comes up and he's maybe 25 feet. And we're looking at him and thinking, this is awesome. This is great. And then the bear drops his head, kind of shakes it and grunts a little and charges now, I don't know what you do in the face of something like that, and I don't know what you're afraid of. Like, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm not afraid of heights, I'm not afraid of spiders, but a charging bear, I learned that day, 
that I was afraid of. In fact, we froze. That whole thing where it says you freeze in, fly, in, in fright, I didn't know that was really a deal, but it, it became one at that moment. And we stood right there as the bear charged us and stopped about five, six feet from us. And he's stomping the ground and shaking his head. And we are terrified. And we just stood there shaking. And we realized we were a little bit of an impasse. So the bear started to move towards us. So we started to move back. That was just too close. And so as we moved back, we kind of circled around until pretty soon we gained a little more distance. He was more interested. We grabbed our food stuff on the way out. He went to our packs and he started going through stuff and ripping stuff up. And so we decided, all right, this is our chance. There's a bear cable over there. Let's get the food out of reach of the bear. So we go over to the bear cable and we tie the food to the food cable. And the way that works is there's a cable that's, that's maybe 12 feet high. And then it goes down through a little crank and pulley. And so you can lower it, tie your food off, and then raise it and it lifts your food up into the air. So we had done that rather hastily, put our food up, cranked it, and so it's up out of the bear's reach. And just in time, because he'd realized what we were doing, he came right over to the bear cable. And we got out of there, got to the other side of the creek. And the bear stands underneath and literally gets on his hind legs. And he's just standing there looking up at the food. And as he's looking up the food, there's no way he can reach it. Bears can't jump, not that high, and we hoped. And so he goes over to where the crank is, and he literally slides an arm around the cable, gets a leg inside the cable, and twists himself up in the cable, and then starts thrashing about. And the cable is bouncing up and down. The string on our little draw sack food bag breaks, and it falls down to the ground. The bear then slowly unwraps himself, gets himself out, goes over and grabs our food sack and runs off into the woods. We are now a day's hike into the back country. Bob has seen his bear and we now have no food. So we go back, we pack up our tents and get all our gear that's scattered all over and we start hiking out. Now it's late afternoon And uh, we've been charged by a bear, so we're a little shook at first. But as we go, we start thinking to ourselves, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We started quoting verses. We know the bear lore that there's certain things you can do. Like if you call a bear's bluff, if he charges, it's probably a bluff charge. We know it was a bluff charge because we just stood there. Not quite as proud as that, but just stood there and he stopped. And we started thinking we we didn't bang on pots and pans. We didn't make any noise. We didn't do any of the right things. And there's that verse in the Bible that says, God has given man dominion over the animals. By golly, we should have dominion over the animals. We shouldn't give up. We decided to make a go of it. So we stopped right there. There was a little creek where we could fish. Bob had a pole. And I know about wilderness plants and the edibles. And I said, look, it's spring. There's a ton of edibles out. You catch fish. I'll get the salad and we'll make a go of this. So he went fishing. I got gathered up some stuff. And then I went and started setting up the tent. And while I'm setting up the tent, here comes a second bear. It's the biggest bear I've ever seen. is back about this high. And he comes wandering towards the camp. Now, I'm not going to be there alone. I need Bob to, to be in front of me if the bear comes. So I go get Bob. And I bring him back. And I, he's catching a fish just as I get to the creek. And I say, oh, that's awesome, Bob. Do you want to feed it to the bear now or later? And he's like, that's not even funny. And I go, it's not. He's in camp right now. So we come running up to camp. Now we're going to do all the right things. 
So now we made all the noise, tried to make ourselves big, and just came crashing through the woods. And sure enough, it spooked a bear, and this bear went across this little creek, and he's on the other side. Then he stops running, and he turns around and starts walking parallel with the creek to where we were towards our campsite. And so at this point, we're throwing rocks at him, and it's just thumping off the side. And he gives us that look like, you're not making me any happier right now. And we realized, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it soon. So he stops right across from our campsite on the other side of the creek. And we decided if he comes towards us, we're going to charge him. We've chased him out of the camp once. Let's do it again. And let's be done with this bear. And this bear drops his head and starts sniffing around and starts to step down into the creek. As soon as he starts stepping down in the creek, that's our signal, we're going. And so Bob and I, and we start running down the the bank on this side. The bear drops, growls, and he starts down his side. He kept running, we stopped. And we jump behind two trees. Bob's behind a tree right there. I'm behind a tree right there. And the bear is right there, not less than three feet from both of us. And we're stuck in this little impasse of having this whole situation going. Twice in one day, I'm charged by a bear, and my body is jello, and I am shaking, and I am terrified. After we backed ourselves out of that situation, we waited until the bear had gone through our packs and gone through our tent and destroyed everything. He eventually drifted off. He went to the creek and got the fish that Bob had got. And at that point, we packed up all our gear. We hiked out in the dark. And those last few miles, we were terrified. We got in the car. We locked the doors in the car because bears, you know, they're, we don't know. We were terrified. We get home. And when I got home, not only did I lock the door, I made sure every window was closed, but I slept with the light on because I was terrified. This is the fear they have. Now, if, if you read the Greek, it literally says this. On the evening of that day, the, the first day of the week, the, da- the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the bears. It doesn't say that, does it? That's not the Greek. It doesn't say that they were afraid of the bears. They were afraid of the Jews. And I will tell you that bears aren't Jewish. So there's not a combination here. The situation is this. They had just missed getting arrested. As you'll remember, the, the, when the Jews came for him after Judas's betrayal, they came to arrest them all, and Jesus talked them out of being arrested. But they arrested Jesus, and they tortured him, and they crucified him. They killed him. And the, the disciples have this fresh in their memory. They know what the Jews are capable of, and they're afraid that they might be next, that the, that the Jews might come after them. And so they've hidden themselves. They've locked the door for fear of what's happening in the outside world, that it might come and get them. Now, it's ironic that we sit here 2,000 years later that many Christians still live in fear of the world and gather together and withdraw from the world afraid of the world. What happens in this story is Jesus showing up in that scene with them afraid of what might happen to them, and he interrupts it and says, no, there's another narrative that I want to tell you. And this is the story of this passage in John 20, is that Though this wouldn't be the last time that Christians would withdraw, Jesus is given direction of what we're supposed to do, of how we're supposed to handle this. 
And he, he comes into this point to stop and, and say, basically, you may feel like you're at risk where you are, but the greater risk is for those who are outside these doors who don't know the story. So this is the story that as it comes in, these, these disciples are terrified. But Jesus does something, and listen to what happens next. Jesus came and stood among them. So even though the doors are locked, Jesus comes and stands among them. Now, as a kid, I love that part, that Jesus somehow just passed through the walls. I'm like, if I could only figure out that spiritual gift. I mean, all kinds of people have spiritual gifts. I wanted that one, that you could just walk through walls. It apparently isn't one. But the question is, was he a spirit? And we know from other passages, like in the Luke version, he literally stops and eats with them. So this isn't a ghost or a spirit. This is the body of Christ. He lets them see his hands and touch his side. He lets them engage with them. So this is a physical body, but Jesus gets there. And sometimes, like as a kid, I'm so amazed at this miracle being played out. I'm going, that's really cool that Jesus has figured out how to just like walk through or how to appear, however he does it. But you've got to remember the cooler miracle is the fact that he's alive at all. He was crucified. He was buried. He was dead for three days and he rises again. That's the miracle we should be interested in. And that's the miracle that it begins to play out. So as we go into this passage, Jesus knows they're terrified because they're already afraid of the Jews. And now there's somebody standing amongst them that wasn't there a second ago, even though the doors are locked. And so Jesus' first words are, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And this is just a classic phrase, that then the disciples were glad. You need to understand when he first appeared, they were not glad. They were terrified. How did he get here? But once he shows them who he is and they see his wounds, they see his side, then they realize you're, you're alive. And it switches to an completely different emotion. It overwhelms them. And then Jesus begins this conversation. So then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Jesus comes when in the middle of his itinerary, you can imagine his calendar. All right, I'm going to go three years with the disciples, but then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to have the last supper. I'm going to wash. Judas is going to betray me. Then I'm going to be arrested. Oh yeah, the, I'm going to go to the garden and pray. And then I'm going to be arrested. Then I'm going to be uh, persecuted and tortured. And then I'm going to be hung on the cross. After he resurrects, that day that all of eternity, all of the the universe is keyed in on this day of the resurrection of the Son of God, that in that moment, Jesus chooses to then go and be with the disciples. Now, initially, that in and of itself sounds wonderful, but there's a question, and I don't know if you've ever asked this, but what did he do the rest of the day? You ever wondered that? Darren touched on it last week when he talked about the fact that when they first came to the tomb, when they showed up, he wasn't in the tomb. The tomb was empty. The clothes were were folded up and they're laying there, but Jesus isn't around. And they come in and the disciples see that and then they run back and then Mary comes back. She looks in, it's empty. And then she finds out, she thinks he's the gardener. 
And again, as Darren said, that might have been where he was going. He was, you know, getting clothes from the gardener. And we have a naked gardener now running around somewhere. But that idea is, where did he go after that? Because that's in the morning. And the next part we have any story at all is in the afternoon on the guys with a road to Emmaus. And he stays for dinner with them. But we don't know where he was the rest of the day. The fact of the matter is, he stuck around for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. What did he do during those 40 days? Because he would appear at times with the disciples, and then he would leave, and he would go elsewhere. So I want to address that. If, uh, if you've got your Bibles, um, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because there's something here that I, I want you to think about. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 3... Paul is writing and he says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Jesus is going around appearing to over 500 people over this time. That what Jesus is doing at this moment, in the middle of everything else that's gone on, he is coming to find them. He finds them where they're at. Even if they're hiding, even if they lock the doors, Jesus shows up. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. That in the middle of their crisis, he moves towards them. Even though all of his work is done and accomplished, he still has a heart for them and he comes after them. He's he's seeking us out one by one in this process. That's what I believe Jesus was doing during those 40 days. Is he literally is going and he's meeting with individuals. We don't even get all of these stories in scripture. It just alludes to the fact that he did it. But in this process as he does it, they're going through certain things They have fear. We've talked about that. They have doubt. That shows up in the Luke passage, but they're doubting who is, how can anybody rise from the dead? Are you really who you say you are? So they're living with fear. They're living with doubt. They're feeling incredibly vulnerable. And at the same time, they're withdrawing because of all of that. So this is the state of mind they're in. And Jesus comes to them and now listen to what he does. In their fear, he brings them peace peace be with you. And he brings them that peace. And in their, um, their doubt, he shows them the proof. He shows them the evidence. In their doubt, he says, this is how you can know that I'm alive. And he shows his hands and he shows his side. And in their vulnerability, he just simply comes along and he equips them. He gives them what they're going to need. And finally, because they're withdrawn, he gives them purpose. And he says, you can't just come in and hide from the world. In fact, everything that I've done with you is so that you would go out in the world. And he gives that command, as we read back in John, that whole thing of, even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So regardless of where you are at right now, if you have fear, if you have doubts, if you're feeling vulnerable, if you feel like the world is up against you and you're feeling withdrawn, know that that's the kind of person that Jesus moves towards. He wants to come near you and he wants to bring you peace and he wants to bring you the evidence and he wants to get you to a point where you have purpose. This is what this passage is about. But 
If you're like me, you read this and you say, well, I have some questions about the next couple of verses, right? There's a couple of things on here. Like, for example, Jesus breathed on them. What is that? When he had said this, he breathed on them. And some people think that because the next line, it says, and when he breathed on, and then he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, that somehow this is associated that by Jesus breathing on them, he's giving them the Holy Spirit as if somehow the Holy Spirit was trapped in his lungs and has been waiting there the whole time. And Jesus needed to exhale the spirit. That is not what it's talking about. And we're going to talk about the Spirit in just a second, because that's going to be of the three challenges. And they are, hey, what does it mean that he breathed on him? What is this whole thing about the Holy Spirit? And what does it mean that you can withhold forgiveness and it's withheld? How, well, how does that sit with what we believe and what we know? But this first one about what does it mean that he breathed on them? I need to tell you that I, that I looked at a lot of commentaries. I did a lot of homework on this one to try to find out what was the, the whole issue there. And is every time you'd pick up another one, somebody would have another point of view. And you would read somebody else, and they'd have a different point of view. You'd read a third scholar, and they would have a, a third point of view. Fourth, completely different from the first three. What that means in real life is that means we don't know. They don't know. So it's not just that, that you know, some of them are wrong. It's probably that we're all wrong in that, gate, that point. But here's some, a couple of possibilities. Number one is that it could have been more of the evidence that as he showed his hands in his side, he showed him the breath that he was alive, that he needed breath to live, that he was still human in that sense, that he had been raised from the dead in that regard, that it could have just simply been evidence. But there's another thing that happens here. This word breathe in the Greek, it only shows up here. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word shows up at all. So it's like, what does the word mean? And if it's only there, we can't look at how it's used in other places to figure that out. So how do we know what this word means? Well, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament, an ancient manuscript called the Septuagint that was written in Greek, and it shows up multiple times there. And where it shows up there is fascinating. The first one is in Genesis 2-7, when God literally breathes life into Adam. So it literally says, and, and God breathed life through the nostrils into Adam, and that turned into life. When God breathes, it brings life. And if that's not enough, another time that it comes up is in Ezekiel 37. And this one's fascinating enough with, because so many parallels to what's happening here that what I want to do is read a, read a portion of this to you. This is Ezekiel 37. It's the whole story of the dry bones. Then he said to me, prophesy to the, to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. There it is again. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean and cut off. A little bit of how the disciples were feeling. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, 
and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Same word that's used here in John 20. So you have it meaning life in Genesis. You have it meaning life in Ezekiel. You have it meaning life in other passages throughout the Old Testament in that same word. But here's the deal. We still don't know that that's true. It might also just be the intimacy that Jesus came close to them, that he saw the needs they were in, and he came near them. And it's a point of, of feeling somebody close. That if somebody's grieving and you hold somebody as they're sobbing and crying, you feel their breath on you. This is Jesus breathing on them. I can breathe, and you don't feel it from a distance. The fact that he breathed on them talks about intimacy. It talks about closeness. It talks about Jesus moving towards them. And this is is all we can know, is that Jesus was close. Is it possible that he's representing the very life, that there was life for Adam and Eve? There is life for those dry bones, but even for the disciples, this whole thing of just having a physical life, and now there's spiritual life. Did this represent the breathing of life? We don't know. We don't know. But that's, that's what we have. Then it goes on to the Holy Spirit. And as I said, I do not believe that those two are linked in the sense that he's breathing the Holy Spirit on them. And as much as that would sound really cool, there's a couple of passages that that don't quite sit right with that. And one of them is in John 16. So just if you're still in John or have your finger there, you can go to John 16, and I believe it's verse 7. In John 16, 7, Jesus himself is talking. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says this in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then Jesus stops and says, the Holy Spirit's not going to come until I'm gone because I have to leave. And then once I'm gone, I will send him. So the Holy Spirit isn't arriving yet. And then in Luke, um, if you go to Luke 24, which is... Uh, the parallel passage to when Jesus shows up in this room with the disciples. In Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's referring to the day of Pentecost. Then here again, it's Jesus saying, that's going to come later. And then there's one more in uh, Acts, Acts 1. So just a a page or two away from where we are in John 20, Jesus, just before his ascension, gives this just instructions one more time in verse 5, chapter 1 of verse 5 of Acts. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what we know when we look at the passage is when he says receive the Holy Spirit, that's a command. It's a command that you should receive the Holy Spirit but he's not giving it to them right then. That comes in a few days. So we look at this and we say, all right, as we come back to John 20, we go through this, this whole thing and realize that uh, Jesus is preparing them. This is part of the resources he gives to them when they're unequipped. He says, peace, I, uh, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a command that you need to do this. And if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, 
it is withheld. So now, this whole time, as we look at it, there's one thing that I want you to see here, is that this forgiveness that he's announcing this day is the first time. That up until this point, Jesus had not died on the cross, he hadn't resurrected, the blood of Christ that we take in is so often is this is us being saved because of the blood of Christ. Previously, it had not been shed. It is not until this moment that Jesus gives to them this message for the very first time that the message of forgiveness is given to you. The first time that peace, that peace be with you because the Son of God has covered all This is the first time you can have that peace. This is the first time you can have that forgiveness. This is pretty cool that this is the the first time ever that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and dwells with them. All of this is happening, and Jesus gives that command as it goes. Now, here's the deal, though. It's, It's a little bit like cease candy. This idea of forgiveness. That you, you have it with you. And what he's saying is, if you don't go and give out that forgiveness and tell that message of forgiveness, then they don't have it. If you take it, they have it. If you don't take it, they don't have it. Now, the reason why I say it's like seized candy is because my wife, Eugenie, she, she sell, her birthday is in October. And not just on a day, it's the birthday month. She celebrates the entire month. And in that birthday month, one of the things I usually try to give her is just a box of seized candy. Now, we also have grandkids in our house from time to time. And as those grandkids come into the house, what I've noticed is that Eugenie doesn't share it. (laughs) She withholds the seized candy. Now, she gives them all kinds of other goodies, but the seized candy is stuck away and she withholds it from them. This is the exact meaning of this passage. It's just like seized candy. It's the concept that what we have, what's been given to us, is free to be distributed and given away. The difference between seized candy and forgiveness is the forgiveness never runs out. The seized candy, I think she's run out. Maybe she'll get some for Christmas. But here's the deal. What he's saying is, you don't create forgiveness. You don't have the ability to forgive someone of their sins. You can say, I forgive you for what you've done for me, but it doesn't give forgiveness for their sins. And we know this because in, in Mark 2, that whole story of when the paralytic is dropped down through the ceiling and, and Jesus sees it and he says, when he saw their faith, he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees freaked out and said, what is that? You can't forgive sins. And Jesus says, so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins, then take up your mat, rise up and walk. Meaning I will show you that I can But he's also saying, no one else has that authority, only me. And Jesus does it then, and Jesus does it now. And for the first time, he not only does it, but then he taps us and says, just as the Father sent me, in the same way I am sending you. Take this message of forgiveness forward. It's not that we can forgive or don't forgive, and they're dependent on that. But they are dependent on hearing the message that at this point in time, when Jesus ascends, there's no one else on earth that knows this message other than these disciples. Their ability to take it out means the message of forgiveness goes out. Their ability to withdraw and hide and not take that message means the world never hears about it. But guess what? Have you heard about it? Guess what they did? 
They left that room. And they did what Jesus did in that moment. That Jesus, in the middle of that, he moves towards them where they are. And then he says, as I was sent, so send I you. I want you to go to and take this message with you so they will hear this message of forgiveness. In the end, we announce forgiveness. We don't create it. It's not in our power. It's not our authority to be able to do that. But we can announce it. We can move towards people that need to have it. You see, as a church, if we withdraw into these walls because we're afraid of the risk that's out in the world, we're not understanding the risk. The greater risk is for those out there who have not yet heard the message of the gospel, who do not know yet that there is a saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they don't hear that story, then you've withheld their forgiveness. They can't even know that. That's what that's about. A couple nights ago, we had um, what we call a Q dinner. Q stands for questions. And with a Q dinner this particular time, it's just a, where we invite a small group of people together. And we talk about a cultural issue, a question of the day. And this week, we talked about the question of loneliness. Because I don't know if you've been tracking it, but right now, suicide is at an all-time high. Higher than it's ever been before. It's off the charts. And yet here we are, a country that is living, it's the richest country in the world, not just now, but for all time. And that we are living at a level of, of wealth that has never been seen before. And in the middle of that, we have the highest suicide rates of all time. There's something wrong. And the, the, the issue of loneliness is, is wreaking havoc in our society. So we had this Q dinner to have a conversation about loneliness. And in the conversation, we're talking through how it is that we feel lonely. And how many of you felt lonely at some point in your life? Yeah, just about all of us. Some of you maybe right now are in that moment. And we're having this conversation of what is that? Well, what do we do about it? How can we reach out to others? What does this look like? As we're having this conversation about loneliness, um, one of the, the individuals that are at this dinner stops and tells a story that in this very foyer, as there was a setup for an event in here, there was people doing decorations, that she noticed that there was a, a gentleman that looked a little bit like an outcast. He was sitting off by himself. Nobody was talking to him. He was just kind of over there looking a little forlorn and lonely. So she eventually went over to him and said, hey, are you okay? You know, can I help you with anything? And he says, no, I'm just waiting for some." And so she left him alone, but for the entire night, nobody ever came. He stayed there alone, and at the end, he finally got up and walked out. And as we talked about that, that that not only was he lonely, but that he, he felt stood up, nobody came, that we were talking about how we could do things and how we could move towards others. And one of the other individuals at the dinner stopped and said, oh, it just struck me. And we're like, what? He was waiting for me. And we thought, literally, and she goes, no, I just mean that when we see somebody who's waiting and sitting there in the loneliness, we can be the answer to that. That if they're waiting, we can show up. That if somebody's in need, if somebody is in fear, if somebody is in confusion, if somebody is feeling vulnerable, if somebody needs forgiveness, if somebody is feeling lost in their world, we have the answer for them. They're waiting for us. And we have the ability to go outside these doors to reach out into this community and come up to them. And we joked a little bit that night that one of the things that might be the great entry line into an awkward situation. You see somebody all alone and you're going, I don't know what to say. Then you come up to them and you just say, hey, 
Are you waiting for me? And they'll look at you like, are you crazy? No. I don't know what to do with it after that line. You're on your own. But uh, no, then you tell this story and then you stop and say, no, we were just talking about that, that sometimes somebody that's waiting, we may not realize, but there might be this other deal going on that it might be me you're waiting for. So let me tell you about why that matters. You don't have to be alone. Can I sit with you for a while? Can I hear your story? Can I talk? Can we share? Can we move forward? Can we get close enough in intimacy that they would feel our breath? You see, there's a world out there that's hurting. And we're not immune. We have hurts here as well. But he stops and he gives this message. In the same way that the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Go. Do what Jesus did. He showed up where they were. He got close to them. And he brought the message of forgiveness. That's our call. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just come here so grateful that even as we uh, are going to a week of Thanksgiving, this is a great message to be so grateful for what you've done for us, that you have come and brought peace into our life. You've brought the Holy Spirit into our life. You've brought forgiveness into our life. You've bathed us in love. Lord, may we remember that. And may we remember your words that you are sending us to go out, to not huddle and hide, but rather show up, draw near to them, and Lord, be close with them. Lord, we ask that for anybody that might be in this room right now that is feeling lonely, that is feeling distant, that is feeling the weight of sin and feeling the weight of brokenness, whether their own or somebody else's, Lord, that you would meet them today that you would draw close to them, that they would feel your presence. And Lord, at the same time, that those of us who are attentive to your spirit would hear when you're calling us to move towards someone. Lord, that you might bring somebody to our mind even now that might be going through a difficult time that we could move towards them. Somebody that might be wrestling with forgiveness. And Lord, we might be able to bring forgiveness to them as you have commanded us to do. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for what you've done in our lives. We ask you to continue to use this church mightily in our community to take this message forward, the message of forgiveness. We ask these things in your name. Amen.